This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Gracia Burnham. You may recall the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham being kidnapped by a radical Muslim militant group in the Philippines in 2001. They were held captive for over a year before a rescue attempt by the Philippine Army led to the death of Martin and the freedom of Gracia. Today, Gracia joins me to discuss her life with Martin, their time in captivity, God's provision during the 20 years since leaving the jungle, and how she encourages others walking through tragic loss. Before we begin, I want to invite you to go one step further and connect with me at graceenoughpodcast.com. On the homepage, scroll down, enter your name and email address. Don't worry. I won't clutter your inbox, but I will send you 10 scripture prayers to calm your heart for free. And then one time a month, I will connect with you through my newsletter. You can reply to those emails at any time. So please go to graceenoughpodcast.com and connect with me there. Okay, friends, let's drop into today's conversation with Gracia Burnham, hope after being held hostage. Gracia, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. I'm happy to be with you, Amber. Tell us a little bit about your family and what you're doing currently. My name is Gracia Burnham. I uh, was raised in a pastor's home. I came to know Jesus at an early age. Um, A big deal at our house was family devotions every night. And yeah, I grew up knowing the gospel and When I got into college age, I went to Calvary Bible College in Kansas City, Missouri, where uh, I met a a neat guy, Martin Burnham, and I fell in love with him and we got married. We had three children uh, overseas. We became missionaries and my children are grown now. So I'm a grandma and six grandchildren, another on the way. And um Yeah, things are good. And so currently, do you still speak really often? I know you've written two books. So tell everybody the name of those as I haven't um, read the second one, but I've read the first one. And it certainly chronicles the story of you and your husband. Well, I do. I travel and speak about my books, about our story. Um, The first one is in the presence of my enemies which tells the story of my husband and I being taken hostage overseas. And um, the second one to fly again is more of a devotional um, life lessons. I learned going through that awful year in the jungle. Yeah. 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 And so this last year with 2020, I mean, have you done a ton of online activity? I'm sure that was a huge pivot. Yeah, not a ton. I didn't do a ton because I don't know what I'm doing. And I had to let my assistant go because all my speaking fell apart. Yeah. So, so did my income. So uh, I was suddenly 
uh, things were very lean here. Yeah. So didn't have an assistant, which she keeps things going for me. And so really I had a year of rest. Yeah. Um, I had a Jubilee year, right? Well, so you, like you said, you met your husband in college. Now the college that you attended, was it your dad that taught there? Yeah. My dad was a professor there. Uh, when I was in high school, he took on job teaching there in the theology department at Calvary University it is now. So um, yeah, I went to Kansas City uh, to Christian school in Kansas City, went on to Calvary, and that's where I met Martin. He was the son of missionaries. He had grown up overseas in the Philippines and had attended Faith Academy, the big, um, you know, MK school, the big missionary kids school. And uh, I was very intrigued with Martin, such a nice guy. Yeah, well, and what brought him back to the States is very similar to what ended up taking you guys to the Philippines to serve as missionaries for 20 years, if if I'm remembering correctly. And um, I want you to tell us a little bit of that story when you guys decided that you were going overseas and what was the work that you were doing and, and a little bit about what, you know, how was it while you were there? Cause you had all three of your babies while you lived there. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So tell us a little bit of that story. Martin's parents were tribal missionaries with new tribes mission. New tribes mission has changed their name recently. I don't know if you know that it's I did. ethnos 360 now. So uh, his parents were with ethnos 360 for 40 years. So Martin grew up in the Philippines, went away to boarding school and the way to get home into the jungle where his parents lived during school breaks or summer vacation was to fly in a little missionary airplane and land on a short jungle strip that they had built on one of the mountains near their village. So Martin no, ma'am. Missionary <laughs> aviation. You would have done it. You would have done it. That's right. I would have. That was the only way in, except you know, hiking four days. Yeah. So he grew uh, grew up just loving airplanes and knew all about missionary aviation. So when he graduated from Faith Academy, he came back to the United States to learn to fly and also to get good Bible. First, he got his licenses and everything in Wichita, Kansas, which is the air capital of the United States. And then he went to Calvary Bible College for his Bible. And I happened to be a student there. And he um, always knew that he would head back to the mission field somewhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as things happened, he just ended up going back to the Philippines, which wasn't exactly what he wanted to do. But uh, it was great because he already knew the language and things. Right. So uh, we just went and our job was to keep the missionaries living in the jungle supplied. So think about everything you buy for your family in a month, mm-hmm. your groceries, your stuff at the drugstore, your school books or supplies, whatever you need. We would buy those for about 12 families who were living in the jungle And we would box up their groceries and their medicines and their building supplies. And we would fly them into them to the jungle areas. 
And that was our job to run a good flight program. And Martin wasn't just a ordinary pilot. He was born to fly in the jungle and he loved what he did. And we, we all loved what we did. We, we were just so happy there and God really, really blessed our ministry there. Well, and you say that he was born to fly in the jungle. And so I'm just curious, what makes you say he was born to fly in the jungle? Mr. Cool is what the missionaries would call I love it. Because it, it was scary flying. You know, yeah. I, I hate to even say that because that's not a good thing if you're a mission organization and you're uh, landing on these short jungle strips, but that's the reality of it. So yeah. you had to have a pilot that was very skilled, not a beginner. So um, yeah, Martin just knew how to get a loaded Cessna down on a short jungle strip and get it stopped in the next few hundred feet. And it was usually up a mountain, right? So so you think you land and you get on the brakes, but you don't. You land and you get on the gas or the throttle. So you can get up the hill to the little turnaround point. Oh my gosh. So you can unload and everybody's so excited to have their mail. Of course, this was back in the day when there wasn't email, there wasn't that's right. Phones. So that was the first thing everyone asked for was their mail from back home. I love that because I I will never forget flying into Haiti and we landed you know, at a normal airport, but then we went into a very remote area and landing on a short gravel runway and a plane that only held about 14 people was maybe one of the scariest moments of my life. And I mean, the, the pilot did great, but you know, oh, I'm, a, I'm a normal American. Well, you know what, if, if 14 people were in that plane, that was a huge plane. In our airplanes, there were two or three. <laughs> That's right. My father-in-law now flies Super Cubs and Cessnas. And so yeah. I've been in those too, but on a normal runway. Sure, sure. me out as well. <laughs> uh-huh. It is freaky. I, I didn't like it myself. <laughs> That's right. Well, with that said, um, you guys, for your 18th wedding anniversary, decide that you are going to take a rare trip, really, for you to celebrate at a resort. And tragedy struck there. Mm. And so take us on that journey a little bit. I, I know you were excited to be there, but what happened to you and Martin and many, many others that weekend? Well, Martin had been called down to another island to do some work. And um, he had jet lag from a trip he had just taken. And we knew that he would need some naps. So we thought, okay, before he starts to work, Let's go out to Dos Palmas. We'd always heard about this beautiful island resort. He'll get some naps and then he can start his flying. And um, yeah, our because our anniversary had rolled around. So we went out to Dos Palmas. We were going to be there just overnight, just a few hours. And while we were there, these militant Muslims stormed the resort um, there was a banging on the door, bang, bang, bang. Before Martin could even get to the door, these three guys with M16s broke the door in. And one took him right out. One of them came over to the bed and lowered his weapon at me and yelled, go, go, go. And I said, no, 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 I'm not dressed properly. 
they took me out too after I put on what I'd worn to the beach the night before, cut off shorts and a t-shirt, taking all of us, those little huts built on stilts out over the water, taking us to a waiting speedboat. And as we pulled away from the dock, they raised their weapons in the air and yelled, Al-Akbar. And that's when we knew it was the Abu Sayyaf that had us. Everybody in the Philippines knows who they are. Yeah. Um, Muslims who declared jihad in that area of the world. And we knew we were in big trouble. And we were for, for more than a year. We were in big trouble. Yeah. So you kind of explained there already who the I can't even say it correctly. Abba Sayyaf. Yeah. I mean, I I had practiced that multiple times, but I still messed it up. (laughs) But for people who are listening, who may not really understand what jihad is, how would you describe that to them? These were Muslims who um, they had declared jihad, which is the struggle. Uh, They believe that they need to help Allah get justice for any injustice that they have experienced. And they go way back in history because Allah is a God of justice. And that's what we're here for, to help him get justice. So their, their fight is for um, equality and, and anything that's wrong, fix Mm -hmm. the wrong. So we used to ask them, you know, what's your beef? And they said, well, you know, this all used to be Muslim land and we just want our land back. And Martin said, oh, so what if we could give you this land back? Would your struggle, would your jihad be over? And they said, oh, no, no, there's there's injustice everywhere in the Philippines. And Martin said, well, what if we gave you the whole Philippines? Is your jihad over? And they said, oh, no, no, there's injustice all over Asia. And Martin said, what about Asia? They said, no, no, our our mission is to take Islam to the whole world. Mm. So um, we were just caught in, in a, a very old struggle, a very old jihad, and just got swept up in that. And, but we learned so much about their beliefs and um, what they were working for. The bottom line is, is they were trying to earn their way to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, they hope at the end of time that their good outweighs their bad. And a lot of these guys were bad guys. And they would say, you know, I don't think our good could ever outweigh our bad. So the, the only way for them to go to paradise instead of hell is if they die in jihad. Because oh. if a Muslim dies in jihad, they bypass the iffy judgment. There, there's no weighing the good against the bad. So a lot of these were bad guys, you know, who, who hadn't been careful about what they, how they acted and what they wore and what they ate. And they didn't pray five times a day. And they knew that on judgment day, their good was not going to outweigh their bad. So they joined jihad in hopes they would die in jihad because then they'd go straight to paradise. Okay. Which is the sad part of it. That's the sad part of this whole story, right? Yeah. yeah. The sad part isn't that we were held hostage and that Martin lost his life. The sad part is these guys will probably never hear the gospel and will will not go to spend eternity with God. Uh, That's the tragedy of the whole story. Wow. 
Well, and something that you say about Martin in your book is just how much even they liked him Mm. because he was the kind one. He was the one always that was optimistic and the good attitude. Oh, we're going to be fine. And so I don't know how many details you can share about that, but even if you just think of a story or maybe a way that he was described to share with our listeners. Well, they did like Martin and right away, like that first day, he started making friends with those guys. We, we were in the speedboat, of course, going away out over the ocean and we were being, um, you know, bounced Mm -hmm. so heavily in the ocean and, They throttled back for a while just to give us a rest from getting airborne and smacking back down on the bottom of the boat. And they just started looking at the things that they had stolen from the resort. And a lot of them had stolen watches. So Martin started helping them understand how to fix their watches and how to set them. And I heard him say to one guy who spoke some English, um, oh, look, this watch has two time zones you can set it to Manila time and you can set it to Mecca time. And, you know, right in that moment, he, he made a friend right there. And anyone that could speak any English loved to spend time with Martin and talk about all sorts of things, dating in America. And, <laughs> um, and, and even the guys who didn't speak English somehow liked him. One day he spent hours over at this guy's hammock. And he came back and I said, you were gone a long time. What did you guys talk about? And Martin said, I'm not sure, but we sure had a good visit. (laughs) I mean, it's just such a good perspective. We're laughing and remembering good times. But the reality is Mm. you guys were held hostage along with, was it 18 other people or you were two of the 18? Uh, There were about 20 of us. You're right. Okay. But everyone was let go within a certain number of months, except for the two of you and one other person. Yeah. Do you understand now why that happened? Like, why were you guys held on to? Every once in a while, someone's ransom would come in. Uh, They would let the other hostages have the cell phones or the sat phones, and they would tell their loved ones, we need you to come up with this much money and put it in this bank account and then they'll let us go. And that really would happen. Late at night, we would hike and off in the distance, we would hear a motorbike on a, on a trail and they would take one of us out and they would never come back. And then the motorbike would go away. Their ransom had come in, they'd been set free. So at the very beginning, they told Martin and I, we will deal with you last you'll be political prisoners. So I guess that truly is what happened. And hindsight's 50, yeah. 50, 20, 20, I don't know what it is. Yes. Um, we probably should have said, no, you're not going to deal with us last. We want our turn with the sat phone. We're going to call our loved ones and we're going to set up a ransom just like everybody else. Right. Oh. But we just, you know, we, we didn't know what we were doing when you've never been held hostage. You don't know what you're doing. So we, we should have pushed back against that, but yeah, we were dealt with last. 
I'm going to back up just a little bit because how long were you on the ocean in that boat? How long did it take you to get to the next place? Probably about five days, five days out on the ocean. Yeah. And, and something that as I actually listened to the book, I was so struck by it's just things that you hear of, like, you know, at one point you were drinking the melted ice where the fish were stored. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, gross, right? Like, I mean, I was was pretty gross, but thirsty, you're thirsty. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And so I just want listeners to get an understanding of kind of what the conditions were for you guys, because you moved after you got off the boat, you went several different places. Um, how would you describe the conditions overall? Well, for the most part, we hiked, we moved all the time because we were trying to stay in front of the Philippine military who, of course, were trying to rescue us. So we stayed on the move. So we would hike day after day after day and go through villages and, you know, coerce them into giving us food. And, uh, you know, the, the icky fish water was nice compared to some of the things we drank because we would walk through dirty rivers and that was our drinking water. Um, So uh, one day we were desperate for water and we came across this little pool of water stagnant. And as I dipped my little cup in there, I noticed there were leech eggs, you know, as I was drinking the water. So it, it was what it was. You just ate whatever they gave you. And there were many days we, we didn't eat. Uh, there were days we starved, but for the most part, always on the run, which isn't exactly true because every once in a while we would come to a place where we thought we were safe and we were high enough up in the mountains that we didn't think the military would go up there and, and we would spend weeks. And during those days, of course, totally bored. So yeah. either we were exhausted or we were bored. And, um, and witnessing the atrocities during that time, you didn't really have any purpose. You're just sitting there, sitting, sitting, just waiting for something to happen, which was very hard for a woman, right? Because we want there to be a plan. And I would plan my speeches, I was going to march up to the leader and say, you guys, I could come up with some really good plans right now. Why don't we, you know, and I would have the plan about how we were going to go get some food and get some shelter and let's go find a place where we can live in a house instead of sleeping on, on the jungle floor. Um, But there never seemed to be a plan. We just wandered aimlessly. Well, so tell me during this time, how old were your kids? They were 13, 11 and 10, I think. (laughs) maybe they were 12, 10 and nine when we right. were, but it, I mean, close to the same age as my kids are now right yeah. around that, like late elementary, early middle yeah. school age. Yeah. Um, what were the thoughts that would go through your mind about your kids during that time? Oh. Well, you know, I found out right away that I couldn't think about the kids a whole lot or I would become hysterical. Yep. And, um, so After the first few times of that and worrying about them, I decided anytime we talk about the kids, we're going to talk about what a great day they're having. Like, oh, it's Friday. I bet tonight they're going to go to a football game and they're going to talk their grandma and grandpa out of some money and they're going to get a Snickers bar and a Coke. 
you know, it, it's I survival. All, all my thoughts about the kids, I made them happy thoughts and I didn't let myself think about them a lot, which sounds really weird, but you have to keep yourself together in that situation. And whatever mind games you have to play, you just play them. <laughs> No, I mean, that makes complete sense to me. And I think anybody who may be listening, who has experienced any type of trauma, those are, um, that's what you put up in order to survive. You do what you have to do to survive. Um, it's not what you would do in a normal situation. Yes. And so coping skills, that's right. And, and we've learned some of those during, even during COVID, haven't we? We've learned some coping skills, whether it's, um, not requiring a lot of yourself or deciding you're going on a diet and you're going to exercise every day, you know, just yes. whatever coping skills you come up with, you, the, those are, those are what are going to, what make you get through this trial. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, and so during that time as well, when you would get discouraged, um, you know, we're not going to make it out of here. Martin often was the one that would kind of pull you up a little bit. And so, what were some of the things he would say to you to kind of, you know, point you back towards the Lord and his sovereignty and his plans? Yeah, bless his heart. Because often within minutes, I would go from, you know, God's got this. He knows just where we are. And this is his purpose. And mm-hmm. it's going to be good. And then minutes later, God doesn't even know where we are. We're going to die here in yeah. the jungle. And nobody's even going to know what happened. And Martin always seemed to kind of know what I needed. Um, Did I need to hear a funny song? Did I need to hear a joke? Did I need to hear him say, sit down and shut up? (laughs) You know, because often I I wouldn't (laughs) hold my tongue and, and they were, they would chop people's heads off, you know, when they got angry. And um, one day Martin's, so sweet. I heard him singing to himself as we were hiking up this mountain. And when it was time for a rest, I, I said, uh, Hey, what were you singing back there? Thinking it was some great hymn of the faith. Right. And Martin said, come listen to my story about a man named Jed (laughs) Poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed. So he was singing a silly song to keep himself encouraged. That's so great. That is so fantastic. Um, Well, and so the time came, it was actually, was it June of 2002? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. And so I want to set this up correctly. At this point, 9-11 has happened. Oh, yes. And that plays a big role in your story. Um, Not a big role, but it plays a role. And so what happened after that? What happened after 9-11 that kind of put you guys um, a little bit more in the forefront of people's minds? Well, I think what happened in the States after 9-11 is our family and our loved ones were able to call their congressman and say, those are the people holding our loved ones. And that's when I think things started. Um, we Somehow we floated to the surface um, after that and people really started praying. We thought 9-11 meant, oh, we're, we're doomed now. The U.S. is mm-hmm. never going to talk to these guys. Uh, they're going to be so mad at us. The opposite happened. Um, somehow we started being treated better. I, I think they saw that at the end of this, um, 
we we had more value. Somehow it raised our value in the eyes of the Abu Sayyaf, which mm-hmm. seems like the opposite would have happened. It does. Yeah. So they, they started um, thinking of us as more valuable. Well, they'd get more money, maybe. So how did you guys even find out that 9-11 happened? You know what? Two guys came into the camp the day before it happened. Two guys we didn't know, and they weren't Filipino. And I think they were there to tell the guys something's going to happen. Because the next day, uncharacteristically, the guys turned on their their transistor radios and they were listening during the day, which wasn't usual. And one of the guys, Salimon called Martin over to sit by him. So he would, could listen to the very first news stories about, you know, the planes hitting the twin towers. And at that time they were saying thousands and thousands and thousands had died. And so then those initial news stories. And then they turned off their radios and we didn't hear a word after that. And that was it. Had that little window into what happened in America. Wow. It's so interesting too, because that was such a long, um, in our face, if you were here, you know, so it's interesting to think how your kids probably knew so much more about that even than what was going on with you. So they have a whole different experience. Yes. After I got home, I got invited to speak at this big, huge, you know, stadium where they were going to do the one year anniversary of nine 11. And they asked me to be the speaker. And I realized I didn't know I hadn't seen all those things that you saw over and over. That's right. So I went and got a VHS tape at the at, uh, at the library. And I watched what you had watched over and over to prepare for that. And just told stories about what God did in my heart and in my life during that year. And how, you know, Jesus said the opposite of of what we all want. We all want justice, right? right? Let's go in and take care of this. And Jesus said, love your enemies. Yeah, you get to those who hate you. It makes no sense, right? A lot of things that Jesus said, um, he he had to contrary. Yeah, they're so contrary to what we think. Yeah, to our flesh, right? Like they're so contrary to that. Well, so how did the events of June seventh, two thousand two, unfold? We were weak and exhausted. Our group had dwindled to. 14 Abu Sayyaf and three hostages. We were this ragtag team. Uh, By June 7, we hadn't eaten in nine days. We were on day 10. And I didn't know you could go that long without food. Uh, We had salt and we had water. Um, What we didn't know is the guys on the outside, the CIA, had sewn a homing device into a backpack that they had sent into Sabaya, one of the leaders of the group. So Uh they were able to track us on the guys on the outside. We didn't know that. But the day, June 7, we did realize we heard the soldiers following us. We could tell as we heard them up on the hills. So we started off that day and it clouded up to rain. And always before, one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never fought in the rain. So we thought we were okay. We set up our hammocks and we set up our 
little plastic sheeting to keep the rain off of us. Mm -hmm. And we laid down for a rest. And much to their credit, the military didn't stop that day. They kept pursuing us and they came up over the hill and, um, you know, someone saw them and this huge gun battle, number 17, we'd been through 16 of these before. I mean, 16 in just over a year. This Rambo style shooting up the camp. And, you know, it happened again. Here, here we go again. And, and even before I could hit the ground, I knew what to do. You hit the ground and, um, I was shot in the leg and, uh, kind of slid down the slick grass. We were, we were on the side of a mountain and I came to rest beside Martin and I looked over at him and he was bleeding from his chest. And I knew from experience that, you know, leg, leg wounds might heal, but chest wounds don't. And he just lay breathing very heavily during that gun battle. And, and at one point almost snoring and then he got real heavy. Have you heard that term, the weight of death? Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt that I, even though he wasn't really on me or anything, I felt the weight yeah. of death all of a sudden. And, and that's not what we were praying for and hoping for and by faith, believing God for. Yeah. And um, so I was trying to do what Martin had always told me to do in a gun battle lay still. I was trying to look dead. So they wouldn't know I was alive and drag me back out into the jungle and this nightmare continue. So the guys started retreating down the river, the Abu Sayyaf, and the the military started coming down over the hill. And I started moving my hands around so they would know I was alive. And, and they came and drug me up the hill. And as they drug me away from Martin, I looked back at him and he was white. And that's when I knew for sure he was dead. And they called a helicopter and, and uh, it came and took me and some of the wounded soldiers away. And, you know, we left Martin Lane in the rain. And I remember thinking, this isn't right. But at the same time, God gave me an overwhelming peace. I know you've heard that so many times from people. There was this overwhelming peace that everything was going to be okay. And I never have not felt that. God has always given me an overwhelming peace that things are okay. Yeah. And so Martin stayed there or did they eventually retrieve him? Yeah. Um, they took me to a U.S. Army field unit that had been set up there. American soldiers that had been there the whole time just waiting for us that whole year. So right away they started, um, they took me into surgery. And just before they put me under to fix my leg, um, a s- sweet girl, a major, said, we want you to know that Martin's here. We went back and we got, we picked up his body. Mm. So even going into surgery, I could be, I could rest easy because I knew they didn't leave him just lay in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how long was it before you got to come back to the States? Not so, not that long. Um, maybe three, four days. 
I was in Manila and I told them, if you're not going to get me home really quick, you need to bring my kids back here so we can be together. And so that's when that's what lit a fire under them. Okay, we'll get you home soon. So of course, I met with all these dignitaries and the president of the Philippines and uh, got debriefed by everyone imaginable. And they they flew me back home. And at the same time, they were um, taking Martin's body back home so he could be there for a, a funeral, a beautiful funeral. And people were so kind to us. And oh, so many, so many times at the funeral, people just so kindly said, we prayed for you. God would just touch our hearts to pray for you. And and we want to know what God was doing while we were praying. And that's yeah. when I sort of got the dream of, you know, maybe yeah. there should be a book, right? Maybe I should yeah. tell this story so everyone can see what God did while they were praying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and did hearing that from them help you think, okay, God, when I didn't think you were working, you were. Mm. I I could not believe the notes and the kindness shown to me and my family. Mm. Um, I was staying with Martin's mom and dad, who had been taking care of the children. As soon okay. as we were taken hostage, they had sent the children back to the United States to live with Martin's parents, who were tribal missionaries, but they happened to be home on furlough in Kansas. So they just took care of the kids. And in Paul and Arita's big laundry room, you know, those big tubs that you see at the post office full of, uh, full of letters, those were stacked on top of each other to the ceiling in their laundry room everywhere. There was tens of thousands of just sympathy cards and, and even money in those, which led to starting a foundation because you know, more money than I'd ever seen before. And I didn't think it was for me. And someone very wise said, you know, start a foundation, stick the money in there and give to whatever you want. And, um, you know, God just went before us uh, every step of the way. And just the kindness of the body of Christ, it was amazing. It was amazing to see. Well, and with that said, you know, the reality is, is that, grief comes in waves. And, um, you know, I wonder if once you were home, what was grieving like, as now you're back to being mom of three pretty young children who really have no idea exactly what's happened in your life. And and you underwent a lot of trauma. Um, and then you lost your spouse. And so, well, what was grieving like for you in those early years? You know, I almost hate to answer this question because I'm not sure I grieved. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grieved in the jungle. Somehow I knew, I knew that life was never going to be the same for us again. And I think my grieving all happened in the jungle. I felt this huge loss and this huge oppression. And then when it was over, I just felt lots of joy and looking back on those first few years, I don't remember grieving. I, I do remember listening to music a whole lot. Yeah. Um, the, the group Sela, yeah. I listened to them over and over and over. And in the middle of the night when I would wake up 
and uh, my mind would be racing. And maybe that is grieving. Maybe that's what grieving is. I would just listen, listen to those words. Um, In Jesus' name, we press on. Mm. What a great song. Yeah. Uh, With the prize before our eyes, we find the strength to press on. Just such good, good words. That's really incredible. And I could understand too, when you, when you experience such loss and you're for 14 months, all you get to do is just sit and think about it. And so um, I can see where that makes sense for sure. And so what does your foundation do now? What does life look like for Gracia um, 20 years out? Mm. Almost 20. Yeah. 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 It is almost 20. Um, well, the foundation is not a big part of my life. It's just something that kind of was forced on me, but, um, but we've given more than a million dollars and, and, you know, people just send me money and, um, and it goes to things like missionary aviation, of course, and tribal ministry, which is what Ethnos 360 is all about Mm -hmm. and the persecuted church. Cause now I know what that feels like. And, um, and Muslim ministries. So we just give to those things. And yesterday, um, we actually had a board meeting when our when our pot gets full enough, we just give it all away. And the board are good friends of Martin's businessmen mm. here in this area who know, knew him well and, and knew his heart. So it's not a big deal of what a uh, big part of what I am, but one of those little parts and just traveling and speaking and doing a podcast here and there speaking at a Christian school here and there, you know, I just, I just stay busy. Yeah. So now are all your kids nearby? Uh, No, my daughter Mindy is nearby. She married a new tribes mission MK, a missionary kid from Paraguay, South America. And he's the assistant. He's the associate pastor at our church and they have three of my grandchildren. And, um, my oldest son became a pilot like his dad. He and his little family were in Botswana, Africa for a term, but they've got some health issues. So they're living in Orlando and Jeff is flying for UPS. Nice. Zach, my youngest is in Kansas city. And during COVID he got married. They had a little COVID wedding, a tiny little in his living room. Because uh, they could see their wedding not happening because, you know, all the rules changed. Yep. And um, so they had a beautiful God honoring wedding in his living room. And they're so happy to be married. Um, yeah. So everyone's married and doing fine and loves the Lord and such a gift gracing us. Yeah. 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 Well, as we close out here. If there is a woman out there listening who maybe is just really, really discouraged and she is grieving because she has experienced a tragic loss. I mean, someone pops in my mind who recently lost her husband in a car accident, just tragic with two young children. And while I know that's not the same as your story, it's still tragic. It's Um, tragic. And so how would you encourage that woman? Um, well, what, what really worked for me was people praying. And I would tell that woman, ask everybody, you know, to pray for you. Cause when we pray, God works and God's going to work in your heart and God's going to work in others' hearts to come alongside you. 
So get people praying. The other thing I would say is ask for wise counsel. Um, I, I don't know if you know, but everyone that's gone through a hostage situation that's a United States citizen, the government sends a counselor to them as soon as they get out. Wow. I, I didn't know that, but the man who flew to the Philippines for me was a very important man, but he knew the Lord Jesus. Oh, that's so, so awesome. Brother in the Lord. And the advice he gave me was so good. He said, Gracia, you've been through something awful. People want to help you, but they don't know how. So you need to voice, voice what you need. Tell mm. people what you need. Because some people are going to do things that are wrong. Um, out of a good heart, let, let them know that's not what I need. This is what I need. And voice it with your, with mm. your mouth. Tell people what you need. And the other thing, just keep telling yourself, put it all over your mirrors or whatever. His grace is sufficient. Grace enough, right? Yeah. Um, his grace is enough for you today. today. And if you, can't, if you can't look at the whole day, do what Martin told me in the jungle. If, if you can't handle today, Gracia, let's go for an hour. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's trust God's grace for an hour. If you can't go for an hour, Let's trust God's grace for a minute. Just trust his grace for the little tiny bit of time that you can. Because days get long. Yeah. And nights are long. Because that's when you lay in bed and you think, oh, I don't have strength to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember getting home from the jungle and I just felt so stupid. Because Martin had done everything. You know, he kept the bank account. He, he did the taxes. He kept the car running. All those things, all of a sudden, I didn't know how to do anything. And I felt so stupid. And someone told me, it's okay to feel stupid. Everybody does. Um, it, everybody feels that way. Um, ask for help. Yeah. <laughs> and and just, go, just go an hour. Just go a day. Just his grace is sufficient. Oh, Gracia, that is such... It's a good word, even for my heart, right? Yeah. 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 We're all the same. (laughs) We're all the same. We are. Thank you so much. I want to make sure people know where to find you. Gracia Burnham, is it .com or .org? I always mess up. .org. GraciaBurnham.org. And it's not hard to find me. (laughs) I know. All you got to do is type in her name and reports from every news organization in the world pop up. So (laughs) thank you so much for your time and your faithful walk with the Lord. I'm so grateful. You're welcome, Amber. I don't know that my walk with the Lord's been so faithful, but he's been faithful. He's faithful when we're not. That's right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 20 years without the love of her life. But as you heard, God has been faithful. There is hope, hope in the Lord, friends. There is hope in the Lord Jesus. Don't forget, I want to hear from you. Go to graceenoughpodcast.com, enter your name and email address, and then respond to the welcome email that is sent to you, letting me know what resonated with you from today's episode. I really enjoy connecting with my listeners and would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.